Welcome to GEMCAST, the Geriatric Emergency Medicine Podcast, where we discuss important topics in the care of older patients in the emergency department. I'm your host, Christina Shenby. GEMCAST is produced with the Geriatric ED Collaborative. You can find more episodes on any podcasting app, and you can find the show notes on the resources page of gedcollaborative.com. Welcome back to GEMCAST. I'm Christina Shenvey, and today we're talking about a topic that I haven't talked on GEMCAST about for maybe seven, eight, ten years, and that is community paramedicine for older adults. Joining me today is Megan Corey, and Megan has a big footprint in education and curriculum development and accreditation of training for paramedicine programs. She is the paramedicine program director at the City College of San Francisco, and then also does a lot of national work around accreditation of educational programs. Now, if you are a physician or other clinician, you may not have given much thought to our amazing colleagues and how they are trained to pick up the patient, to do a home assessment, to do all the management before the patient gets to the ED. And so today we're going to learn more about what paramedics are being trained to do and where the field is going. So Megan, thank you for joining me. Thank you, it's great to be here. Now I'm excited to hear more about your program that you've created, which the goal is to help teach a more biopsychosocial approach to the care of older patients, to your paramedic trainees. What was your motivation for creating this curriculum? Yeah, first I should say it, it was a group effort. It's based on a communication that I had with my former medical director, who's still a good friend of mine, Dr. Marlena Tang, an emergency physician at Kaiser Hospital in San Francisco. And Dr. Tang contacted me and said, that she was working with a group and was working on a grant and could see a connection to some of the things that we had discussed in the past about the care of geriatric patients or you know patients that uh, where it involves a more in-depth assessment of the patient in their home maybe along the lines of of what we talk about in community paramedicine eventually when when someone is practicing community paramedicine the biopsychosocial approach to evaluating a patient and then you know we we discussed like the the background and why it's important why this a geriatric specialty rotation for paramedics at the initial training level. So this is what makes it a little bit novel is that we're talking about a rotation that would occur at the initial training level. Why this might help and why it might be important to catch them at, at the early level rather, rather than just waiting until later because community paramedicine tends to be applied after a paramedic is working in the field for a while and after their experience, they go back and get this sort of training and this biopsychosocial approach to patient assessment. So we started discussing this and I think it came out of this grant that they were writing for geriatric emergency departments in San Francisco. A few institutions in San Francisco were collaborating on this grant. And she had said, if they received this grant, we could develop a specialty rotation. We called it a patient care navigator, the PCAN rotation. And we, you know, kind of spelled it all out and decided that 
this would be a great idea. It's a it's definitely a gap in our training standards. We have you know, accreditation standards and, and a minimum competencies for initial training in paramedics that include a laundry list of skills, you know, the typical skills you would think of, the life-saving skills, and the requirement to do clinical rotations that are mostly focused on their performance in the critical patients in an emergency department, pediatric patients in some clinical setting, and maybe airway, you know, procedures in, in an OR. But not really in an emphasis on the geriatric patient. There is some recent activity there, maybe with some simulations in a, you know geriatric in the in the area of geriatric patient care. But really, again, those focus on the the acute, the septic patient, the stroke patient, not the things like readmission reduction and you know recognizing things when you go for a lift assist that might be. It help prevent them from going back to the hospital. Those are the things we wanted to focus on is the, you know, this limited time that EMTs and paramedics have with patients, but in their home, which is the unique thing about EMS, they're in their home. What kind of things could they see that could help address the problems that you all see in the emergency departments, which is, you know, constantly returning, you know, within a short period of time to the emergency department with things that could be prevented. This is a real paradigm shift for me and for probably many of the listeners. As emergency physicians or other clinicians in the ED, we only see that end point of the paramedics gathering the patient, scooping them up, treating them along the way, and then delivering them to the hospital. Whereas what you're describing with this community paramedicine is an entirely almost separate area of public health and outreach to do home assessments, to have more longitudinal care and involvement with the patient. And you mentioned when we were talking earlier that this grew out of rural care, mostly or rural settings. What was the driving force for the creation of these types of programs? Sure. Let me distinguish too first between what we know now as community paramedicine versus where I spend most of my time training and what this rotation is, which is the initial training of paramedics. Mm -hmm. So right now, community paramedicine is applied only after someone has been working in the field. If you want to be a community paramedic, you usually have already experienced being a paramedic in the field in a traditional 911 kind of capacity. And then you go through this extra training. I'm hoping that will shift over time. We could talk about that later, but that that will shift. What we're doing is doing this training in the initial setting. But mm -hmm. getting to your question that community paramedicine is a paradigm shift that's been happening for, you know, at least a decade, if not more. And again, it was it's it was to address a number of things, but one of the main things is the the all of the problems that you can see in the healthcare system with an older patient revisiting the ED at significantly higher rates, especially if they have something, a chronic condition like dementia. And then this is something that we start our geriatric specialty rotation with first with our students is we give them the numbers. We sell the reason for that this is important. Although we don't have, it's not hard to sell because they're usually EMTs and they usually see this problem firsthand. So community paramedicine programs vary. They initially started out addressing chronic 
issues that we were seeing with access to healthcare in the rural setting. So, you know, if you're out in the in the rural setting, you may have a problem actually even getting to care. And then when you do, you may have made a very long trip for something that could be really handled from home. So, and actually, so there's been a lot of changes there with telehealth and linking community paramedics to the physician at the hospital through telehealth and allowing some, you know, degree of things like medication reconciliation. That's a really good one for maybe a chronic heart failure patient or a COPD patient so that they don't have to get into, you know, the ambulance and or in their own vehicle and go all the way in you know, to an institution when they could stay at home and receive some care and have it through telehealth. So that's, that was a, a really a great example of, of where community paramedicine came from in the rural setting. In the urban setting, it's been focusing on a number of issues. I mean, certainly readmission reduction is, is a problem everywhere, or, or readmission to the hospital is, and the need for readmission reduction is, is a need everywhere. And there's a financial incentive for that too, of course. And community paramedicine could potentially assist with that by not having the patient get readmitted so frequently and addressing their their problems at home, but also the focus on things like substance use disorder, the opiate crisis, getting people into to care, working with a multidisciplinary team like a social worker and community health workers to address problems in the community and, and hopefully translating that from just patients to community health as well. So it's really a, a much larger goal, kind of a lofty mm-hmm. goal, but a much larger goal. Well, I think this is a wonderful change. And as places move towards more value-based care, it makes even more sense to reduce admissions, to keep the patient safely at home. And I think it's a great way to use folks who are already medically trained. And now they're not just, we don't just think of them as doing resuscitations or transporting the patient, but really meeting the patient where they are, understanding their complex needs, and then addressing them in the home. And you mentioned that traditionally paramedic training did not involve a specific geriatric rotation. Despite the fact that by 2030, we can expect that 50% of EMS arrivals to the ED will be older patients. So there could not be a more timely topic for them to be learning. Yeah. Now, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the key areas that they learn, and then we can talk about maybe a key clinical take-home or tip or tool that anyone who is assessing patients, whether it's physicians, other clinicians, nurses, or paramedics, can learn from what you are teaching your paramedics, because we all have the same constraints, not that much time, not always that many resources, and a lot of patients to see, and the need to do a quick, but in this case, more holistic evaluation of the patient. So what are those key areas that they learn? Sure. Well, one of the main things in EMS is that, and the unique thing is the environment. So we teach them from EMT school on, you are in a unique position to see, and and physicians will say this to them all the time, you see things that we can't, you're in their home, you're in their environment. And yet, if you look at a textbook that we rarely teach folks about, you know, what are we looking for in the environment? Mm. So we want them to consider the individual, the community and the societal impact of our current standards of practice in EMS and how they can either benefit or hinder the health outcomes of older adults. So we typically start with the background in this training 
which is why a geriatric specialty. So I mentioned that. And then we focus on that, the health improvement, the Institute on Health Improvement's 4M framework of an age-friendly health system. I would love to hear more about that because lately, one of the favorite questions that I have been asking the paramedics when they bring the patient in is, tell me about the home environment. What was that like? But it would be helpful for me to know what things can they or should they be specifically looking for that maybe I could ask about. Sure. And, you know, the evaluating the home environment is not necessarily new for some providers. I know even small rural and not just rural, but community-based fire services, when they go out to do what we call a lift assist, which in and of itself is is a whole, that's a whole podcast because there actually has been a podcast on this. The lift assist call for EMS or for fire to go and help somebody get back into bed commonly turns into a complex call and one that EMS intervenes with. So one of the things that that you'll see some community-based EMS or fire services do is they do an evaluation of the safety of the living space. Are there things in their shower that, that they could slip on? Do they have the skid, the anti-slip pads or handles to hold on to? You know, are there area rugs and are they dangerous? So fall hazards are a huge one. Fall hazards are something that you could easily just look around for very quickly. So especially if you are called for something like a prior fall or a lift assist. So I think that's that's one of the first ones. The other is other things like multiple medications, medications of different names or different types, different doctor's names, different dates, expired medications. Are they all over the places or no organization to it? So medication error is part of that four M's framework. You know, what matters, the medication, the mentation, and their mobility. So if you just kind of think about all of those, these are kind of the areas they emphasize. But another thing they really teach students to pay attention to are the social network. What is this, the patient's social network? Do they have people that they contact? Are they part of, you know, is there a, a family member around? Is that family member an actual family member? You don't want to, you know, assume that everyone's, you know, not in the thinking in the best interest of the patient, but you're, you're thinking in the best interest of the patient. So what kind of social network do they have and, you know, who's around them? Because we always think of, you know, abuse, neglect, and financial abuse as well. It's always in the background. So those are kind of, we, we frame it around those types of things. Those are just a couple of examples of what what we can look for in the home and really doesn't take much. And really it's in their environment, I should say, what is in their immediate environment. I like using the four M's to frame it and that what matters to them, which gets at their social network, That's their right. medications, do they have access to them? Are they taking them? Are they taking too many? Their mentation, what's their level of understanding, their level of communication, and then mobility, which gets at all of those falls risks areas. And then even things that 
you may notice in the environment, like, is there heat or air conditioning or is there electricity, running water? Is there food in the refrigerator that, you know, is edible? And those types of things are so valuable that we can never see in the ED. It has to be in the home environment. Yeah. Piles of bills on their dining room table. Yeah. All of those things. Food in the fridge is a big one. Is there food insecurity? So all of these kind of, again, part of the social drivers of health comes into this as well. What are the other key areas that you teach them in doing their assessment of older patients? Well, looking at the two M's, mentation and mobility, there are tools that the students learn that they haven't learned in traditional EMS training programs. So they learn the delirium triage screen and they, you know, starting with their traditional level of consciousness, but then screening, but then they expand to things like the Richmond agitation and sedation scale or the delirium triage screen and the BCAM score, as it's called, you know, is there a delirium? They are taught tools that will help them really rule out, you know, delirium using these triage screens. And that brief confusion and assessment method, the BCAM is another one because it's highly specific and that can help them with, you know, learning at delirium. Then we give them additional tools. ASEP, I know, American College of Emergency Physicians has that ADEPT tool, which I found to be great to, to link the students to, because they're always looking for more. And that was a really good one that really drills down into types of medications that may cause someone to be more confused and really digs into delirium versus dementia. And then in terms of mobility, they learn the timed up and go tool. So, you know, if you don't give a person a tool, well, first of all, a tool allows you to measure, right, and compare, which is always great because we need data and we need to know whether or not something, we need to be able to compare and know whether something works and, you know, is effective. And so they, you know, if you just told a bunch of, you know, EMS providers, well, you want to test their mobility, you get five different ways of testing mobility, and some of them may not be appropriate for an elderly patient. But the tug procedure, the timed up and go, is something that they practice in this geriatric rotation. And it seems really basic, but it's actually, it's something that it turns out they they really learn from and have provided great feedback on learning the tools, those specific tools that I mentioned, the delirium screening and the mobility tools, that, that's just brand new for them. And I think they really gained from that and found that they start to apply it as they see more and more patients. And these are great tools that any of us in the ED could also use. And I know many institutions, one of our hospitals included, has instituted systematic screening using the DTS and the BCAM, the delirium triage screen and the brief confusion assessment method for delirium. And then the timed up and go is a quick test. You have them stand up, walk, return, and time how long it takes them. And it's something that we can do that I like what you said also adds more standardization so mm -hmm. that we are not relying on just our gestalt of have the patient stand up and walk across the room. Can they walk? But we have a more, a slightly more sophisticated method that we also then have more comparability. If you are doing it and I am doing it, we're speaking the same language and we're communicating in the same way. And I am delighted to hear that they are using the ADEPT tool for users or listeners who are not familiar. That is stands for Assess, Diagnose, Evaluate, Prevent, and Treat. And it's at asep.org slash ADEPT. 
And it's a team, myself and some others created that to be a bedside tool that you can pull up on shift to look for delirium. If you forget everything that we say, you can go back there and it will walk you through how to diagnose and assess patients with delirium. So I'm delighted that paramedics are using it also. I'm delighted you developed it because I thought that was a fantastic addition to their training. And again, if they're, you know, with all of the training that they receive in the initial education and the emphasis on things like ACLS and resuscitations and everything, which are, of course, part of the foundation of being an advanced level, especially uh, EMS worker, they can forget these things. So it's nice to have tools so that you can go back and use, you know, use the tool or remind yourself about the tool and, and have those links. So... So with this knowledge, if the these paramedics are now trained with the 4Ms framework, doing a mobility assessment, doing a delirium cognitive assessment, looking for those social drivers of health and the environment that they're living in, how might the paramedics use these skills in their future careers or care of patients? I've actually heard, and again, we've only been doing this for maybe two years this is, I think, our third year, our third cohort going through the specialty area. So we had some growing pains since paramedics tend to drift into their EMS mode and suddenly they're starting IVs and giving drugs in the emergency department. We have to pull them over. Okay, wait a second. We have a specialty Jerry nurse over here. It helped that our Jerry nurse was an EMT as well. And so she kind of understood that and was able to pull them in. I think where we're going to... I did want to mention one other thing. One of the things that I think they provided with us as preparation for this shift that I think was a really great idea, even though I think it it may sound very simplistic. And I think the students can use this in other areas as they go forward in their patient care, is they provided some scripting for communication. And the scripting fits with the idea that, I mean, any everything from, hi, my name is Megan and I'm your paramedic student here to check on you. How's it going? Just a script like that. Because we're taught so early on to interrogate, you know, you think about the OPQRST, you know, what were you doing when this started and what brought it on and where does it go? What does the pain feel like? It's all this, it's sort of an interrogation. Whereas the, the scripting that they provided were things like, I'm really sorry you have to be here in the ER today. What would you be doing today if you weren't here? What's your understanding so far of your visit? Do you have anything else you want the doctor to know about? And then asking every family and patient, asking every patient and their family member, what's most important to you right now? Is there anything else you're concerned about? Those are questions that are not in the list of their history and physical exam checklist. And I thought it was a great idea that they, and in preparation for this, the geriatric ED sent us, the, the, the nurse specialist sent us these communication tips and, and these starting points for students as they entered this rotation. So honestly, with all these screening tools, I find those communication scripts something that they could take out potentially and use on any patient, if they feel like they want to really hear from the patient rather than interrogating, 
they may say, uh, use an open-ended question, like mm -hmm. what's most important to you right now? That can be used really in, in any patient, you know, not just the geriatric patient. So I think those communication tips were very effective. I love that idea of scripting. I'm curious, what sorts of answers do patients give when you have asked them those questions of what's most important? What do you want the doctors to know? Yeah, that's, and everything from, and I've had the students do a write-up of a patient. They do a whole biopsychosocial assessment write-up of a patient from their rotation. And it is interesting how basic needs come out in those things like I need somebody to do my shopping for me. I, I can't get to the grocery store. I, I don't have a way of travel, transport, so which leads to food insecurity. There was one case that occurred early on. And to be fair, this student was already working in a for a multi-service center. So he already had the mindset of the biopsychosocial approach, which was great to have him as one of our first students to rotate through. And he spoke Tagalog and the patient spoke English and Tagalog. But when he spoke to her in Tagalog, he was able, she opened up to him and she told him that she could not pay her heating bill. She couldn't pay her PG&E bill. And the, the patient had come in as a critical patient with hypothermia, had been resuscitated in the emergency department. She wasn't in full cardiac arrest, but she was, she was a critical patient and was, you know, treated successfully in the emergency department. And while they were doing the assessment, he called a social worker over and said, after he had, you know, communicated with her for a while, talked in Tagalog about personal things, you know, family and vacations and other things like that. And what, what do you miss about your homeland and, and uh, things like that? She opened up and said that she just can't, she couldn't pay her heating bill. And so the social worker actually ended up saying something to the geriatric nurse about how, you know, this may not, may have gone unrecognized. And then this turned out to be a very good case to show the students from that point on that you can recognize something. This may have happened again, uh, you know, had mm -hmm. we not recognized it before she was discharged. That's a great example of how you can have that impact with asking a little bit more of those questions or those open-ended non-interrogation questions. And it sounds like these students will use their skills, whether they're going on traditional ambulance runs and transporting folks to the ED, or if they later in their careers become community paramedic and start doing more home visits or evaluations or preventative work. With all of this, I'm curious, where do you see the field going? What are the big opportunities that with the change in population, the change in healthcare systems and resources, where could this go in the future? Well, I'm going to start by something that we should be addressing that we're not yet, and it's still not on the radar as far as I can see. And that is we are missing a huge opportunity to reach geriatric patients by implementing this at the basic EMT level, because basic level EMTs spend more time with geriatric patients 
than your advanced level providers because they do things like interfacility transport. They transport patients home. They get to see the home environment when they're discharged automatically. And so they're completely off the radar right now, that basic level EMT. And I think that is something that is a big gap that needs to be addressed. But I do see right now where it's heading with, you know, if it would be great if we could do that, but I don't see that anywhere right now is if I, I think we should head into community EMT, not just community paramedic, you shouldn't have to be out there for a long time. You also should, we should be looking at community health workers as becoming, you know, integrated with all of this. So interdisciplinary, interprofessional practice, that's, that is where this is headed. It's not just a paramedic that arrives or a specialty community paramedic. It's paramedic with other members of a, a social worker, other members of a, a clinical team that can address the whole patient environment. And then the other thing is we need the translational science. You can't keep doing this on philosophy. We can't keep doing this saying, it, wouldn't this be a great idea and it's be- for the betterment of society? We need to, you know, that's great, but it's not going to survive without the data. So we need the translational science that takes it from the, the educational level to all the way into the return on investment to what kinds of things are are we doing. And I think some of that financial work is being done. We get reports on the impact of community paramedic on the, the cost savings of readmission reduction to some degree. But I think the, the translational science has to extend into patient health and community health outcomes as well. I think you hit the nail on the head there with those two of needing a multidisciplinary approach and then needing data to drive funding to understand the return on investment, both financially and in terms of health. And the multidisciplinary approach is key because if the paramedic notices, oh, there's no electricity or there's no food in the home, but there's no one for them to tell to help the patient, then it actually feels more disempowering because now they have this burden of knowledge and concern, but nowhere to take it to. And even if they bring it to me as a physician, I have nowhere to go. And now I'm carrying that burden of knowledge and, you know, frustration and helplessness that I can't go to someone to help with it. So we need to have our social workers and our community resources and our meals on wheels, and it needs to be all connected so that we can then make, but you just, you just described what it feels like to be an EMT. So that's what EMTs, they come to paramedic school and they come with all those frustrations. When we start, you know, I, I do an exercise where we ask them to write out one of the areas of frustration in your work as an EMT. And this comes up all the time. You know, we t- we're told to bring somebody home, we get to the home and it is completely inadequate. It's, but we have no idea what to do. We have no base to contact. We have no, you know, who, what do we do about it? We go to an, you know, a, a facility and we think that the ratios are terrible and they're not, but we have no idea what to do. So that the basic level EMT is yeah, that's an area of frustration. They come into paramedic school with that. And I think half the time they come to paramedic school because they see, okay, at least I can do something now. Mm. Because when I was an EMT, I didn't feel like I could do anything about it. Mm. Well, and I think that speaks to the desire to take care of people and the desire to make changes. And I think the way that you're teaching and the way that you're bringing in that multidisciplinary approach really is the answer. And 
with more data, with more demonstration of value, avoiding hospital readmissions, for example, if you can avoid yeah. one hospital readmission, how much could that then pay for to support in the community to keep people safely, independently thriving at home? Well, thank you, Megan, for being on GEMcast. It, I love learning from and hearing from people who are in, you know, kind of these parallel teams that we work together with and learning from you. So thank you for being on GEMcast. Thank you. It was great to be here. Thank you for listening to this episode of GEMcast. You can connect with me on Twitter with the handle at GEMpodcast. You can also navigate over to gedcollaborative.com for more resources on the care of older patients.